right, John, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, yeah. John Sperling, whom I know as the sage of the North Bank because of your books about Arsenal, Top Guns, Arsenal in the 90s, Highbury, the story of Arsenal in N5, and then yeah. this new one, Get It On or Turn It Off, uh, How the <laughs> 70s Rocked Football. Uh, I can't see that title now without thinking of what you say in the acknowledgements. So that song became a guide for you at, during the writing process. Absolutely. I had had this book on the go, uh, thinking about it for 25 years. I started making it a long time ago. But as I say in my in my in my introduction, um, what prompted me to finally get it over the line was was lockdown. I turned 50 in April 2020, and I thought if I don't write this now, I will I will never write it. So. I started it, you know, took it to bite back. But every time, yeah, every time I finished a chapter, I would play Get It On at full volume and much to the embarrassment of my daughters, dance around the kitchen. So they subbed the, uh, the, the line Get It On for Turn It Off. That became the, uh, the kind of catchphrase in our family. <laughs> <laughs> Turn it off. This is, uh, these are the Spurls girls, your wife Helen and your daughters Phoebe and Lacey. How old are they now? <laughs> That's right. So Phoebe is 16 and Lacey is 10. Ooh, wow. Now we could turn off a tangent all about female mental health and girls' mental health. But instead, I want to talk about Arsenal ladies first, before I forget. Okay. Um, yeah. Because they seem to be the best team in England at the moment. Yeah, they are. They've done they've done fantastically well over over a very long period of time, and it's lovely to see the the you know the women's team scooping up the trophies, even even more so than than all conquering Arsenal did under under Wenger and for a while under George Graham. No, they are a magnificent team, and they have been for decades now. Yeah. Since the great Vic Akers started as manager, and then he. Um, taught Emma Hayes everything she knows about the brilliance and then Emma effed off to Chelsea. Um, but yeah. I wonder if she wants to go yeah. back to Arsenal at some I point. Hope, the door's always open. I hope so. I mean, the, you know, obviously we've seen uh, Ashley Cole, for instance, go from Arsenal to Chelsea and become a, a pariah. It would, be, it would be nice to see her uh, come back, perhaps, and, and uh, not, uh, you know, not, not just go down the Ashley Cole route of going there and, and scooping up all the trophies, definitely. No, and indeed Ashley Cole is at Chelsea at the moment, yes, teaching the kids. Uh, and last night, we're talking on Thursday 24th of February, last night Patrick Vieira came to Watford, and I don't want to mention the score, but it is purely commensurate <laughs> with how brilliant Vieira is at getting a, a team together. So Patrick, who, who was Arsene Wenger's captain for several years, I don't want to say he'll be a future Arsenal manager because he might not be, he might go elsewhere, Man City perhaps. But are you surprised that Vieira has got a Premier League job? No, no, I'm not. I mean, Patrick Vieira, he cut his, cut his teeth in America, then he was at Nice, at nice wasn't he, as well, oh. for, for a while. Um, I think Patrick Vieira, as a captain, was always magnificent at marshalling his players and setting the standards for what players in every position needed to do. He was very, he was, he was a quiet, effective leader, and I'm, I'm delighted that he's proving to be uh, a success in the Premiership. And if he ended up at Arsenal one day, I would be, I'd be very, very pleased with that. Vieira was one that was. You know, probably along with Paul Davis and Ian Wright, my my favourite ever Arsenal player. So no, I'm I'm always delighted when Vieira does well. I think everyone's favourite Arsenal player is Ian Wright. He played with such a <laughs> smile yeah. on his face. I was really lucky because I'm quite young, 
But I remember Ian Wright as a player and when he beat Cliff Bastin's goal hall eventually. It took him ages, yeah. Uh, yeah. but he finally just did it. Uh, and he is in the football library as well because he, along with Musa Akwanga, has written the book Striking Out, which is yeah. a veiled story of his own life. But he's got some way to go. I mean, he's written a couple of memoirs. Mr. Pigden comes out so well in his book. Yes, he does. Is that his, his um, sports yeah. teacher at school? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because I remember seeing her, I remember oddly on the day that my, my wife went into labour with my with my eldest daughter, Phoebe. I remember when we were waiting for, uh, for more things to happen and she'd gone into labour and we were told to wait and wait and then, and then go in. I remember watching that program, and he was in tears about meeting Mr. Pigton. It was, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was unusual because Ian Wright had always been seen at that point as quite a hard-edged footballer. You know, had a really tough side to him. But as anyone knows, he's also you know a big softy, big crybaby as well, in a, in a good way. Yeah. So it's always wonderful when you know he uh, he recognises the impact that his teacher had on him. Yeah, definitely. Grandpa Ian. As he is now. Grandpa Ian, indeed, yeah. yeah. That's when you know, not that you are old, but you know you're getting old when footballers you grew up uh, watching are grandfathers. This is something that time can do nothing about, and we're celebrating the decade which, albeit it ended over 40 years ago, but it started 50 years ago now. Uh, Get it on how the 70s rocked football, and by golly, they did. The forward is from Barry Davis which is interesting, very interesting. Barry mentions that younger generations will have an enlightenment um, about certain aspects of the book. Which bits in particular do you think a fan of the current game would be enlightened about the most? Well, I I think, I mean, first of all, what I would say is that when Barry Davis agreed to write the forward, I was on cloud nine for about a week because to me Barry Davis was the voice of football when I was growing up and for him to agree to write the forward for my book it, it filled me with pleasure I have to say that it really did um, and when he wrote when he wrote the forward and I saw it I was like goodness me I was, I was thrilled I showed all my friends straight away <laughs> um, yeah, if you didn't grow up with the 70s in, in the 70s I would say that it's the whole concept of 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 colour TV. So in 1970, there was only 150,000 sets owned by in, in Britain. You know, imagine the impact of seeing colour TV for the first time. So when the 1970 World Cup was broadcast, very few saw it in colour, but those that did talked about it. And I think what it did is it made football literally larger than life. You know, the 1970 World Cup, you've got Brazil's golden shirts, you've got the... You've got the, you know, the lush green turf. You've got England's white shirts beaming out there. And I, I can't even imagine what it would be like to see football in colour for the first time. So you've kind of got the this sensory overload there. So colour TV is hugely important. But I think also it's the, the whole factor of the, the football personality gets born in the 70s. We take that for granted now with pundits and, uh, you know, former players commenting and that kind of thing. Well, the 70s really kicked that off in the sense that Brian Clough, you know, was manager of Derby and then Forrest and, and Malcolm Allison, coach and then manager at Manchester City, saw the opportunities that TV brought them and started to, you know, bring the, the kind of era of professional outrage, if you like, and, and outspoken comments to, to, to viewers and punters. And, and you know, they, they, they lapped it up. 
for the younger readers, I think that element will will be new. I think also that the rather kind of agricultural approach that a lot of teams took to football in the 70s um, in terms of the violence, you know, the tackling, you know, it is when you look watch football in the 70s now, it does look like a, a different, you know, it's a different ball game. So I think it's uh, it's quite jarring. I think it is quite in your face, and it's definitely unvarnished. And I think that's what makes it such a, a remarkable decade to write about. Yeah, and it, it really is. Football was coming out of black and white. I learned something yesterday. The reason why tennis balls are yellow is because when yeah. the BBC screened Wimbledon, David Attenborough said, "Well, we want to be able to see the ball." Attenborough was controller of BBC Two. So he yep. made the balls at Wimbledon yellow. Oh, I never is, knew that. I, it was in the QI book, one of these fact books that I was reading yes. whilst reading Turn It Off slash Get It On, How the <laughs> 70s Rocked Football. Now, it was, it was commissioned by Biteback. Yeah. Who are, this is Ian Dale's company, and they are a political-minded, yeah. or, or politics as in stuff to do with people. And we're talking on yeah. the day of the invasion, and we're not going to mention it. I'm not going to mention our Shavin or Lushni or anything like that, because there's no right, point. Right. Um, but yes, it's on bike back, which means yeah. that you, you share shelf space with some quite luminary authors, including the great Joe Pike, who wrote a book for bike back about the referendum, the Scottish referendum. Yeah. There, are, there are politics in this book. Harold Wilson turns up very early, and he is the football fan. Yeah. Yeah, he is. I mean, he's the first politician to really court football and footballers. So when Harold Wilson um, won the election in uh, in in sixty sixty four, oh, I have to check that sixty four, I believe it was. He wanted to appeal to younger voters, um, and so he courted the Beatles. You know, he did everything he could to be seen with with the the, the Fab Four. And he also did everything to be seen with, with George Best. And <clears throat> I was lucky enough to interview George Best. Like most of the players I spoke to, I just went and, went and asked him, basically, if he talked to me as some idiot off the street. And he looked at me and was a bit wary at first, and I spoke to him. But, um, yeah, Harold Wilson wanted to wanted to, to, to socialise with, with George Best. He presented him with some awards, invited him to Downing Street on, on a number of occasions. And George Best was always wary because George Best was, was quite shy. And he, as he, he told me, he never, he never quite knew what Harold Wilson, you know, wanted from him. And, you know, Jack Charlton said that when England won the World Cup in 66, you know, Wilson was straight in there with, have you, only, have you noticed that England only ever win the World Cup when Labour is in, is in power? <laughs> yes. And as Jack Charlton labelled him a cheeky bugger for trying to get into every photo with, you know, with, with the Charltons and, and Bobby Moore and, 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 and whatever else. But like many politicians, Harold Wilson discovered that football and politics doesn't always mix because he, he grew quite obsessed. I think obsessed is probably not too strong a word with the 1970 World Cup because an election was looming and he decided to call the election during the 1970 World Cup. And as it happened, the election took place a couple of days after England got, got beaten by West Germany in, um, in, in Mexico, having led 2-0. They, they lost 3-2. And, you know, Wilson was, Wilson was convinced that their capitulation against West Germany kind of swung voters against Labour. They started to question, well, you know, if the football team is no longer world champions, does that, you know, what, what does this say about the country and, and, that, and that kind of thing? I think it's probably more likely the fact that 
the balance of payments was in arrears when it was got published. I think that's probably what it was, the old economic competency model. But yeah, Wilson was obsessed with this, and he was convinced that that was that was what what did it. That England, you know, losing to Germany meant that Edward Heath and the Conservative Party won the 1970 general election. And indeed, at the end of the decade, someone else conservative uh, from the hot football hotbed of Grantham uh, won. <laughs> Yeah. Won the election. I, was... I mean, what, what's I'm already working on the follow-up yes. to, yeah. to uh, get it on, which is I think going to be called um, "Go to War." Actually, the second mm-hmm. line from um, uh, the, you know, no the yeah, exactly, exactly. So, and I think because it, it sums up the the eighties. But Thatcher um, very famously um, had a photo opportunity with the nineteen eighty England. European Championship squad outside number 10 where Emlyn Hughes and Kevin Keegan famously kind of kissed her on each cheek. Yes. Um, but very quickly uh, with the, the 80 European Championships there's crowd trouble out there and within a couple of weeks you know she was labelling English football fans as a disgrace and it being a dark day for, for, for the country and you know that is that is how it kind of goes through through the 80s you know Thatcher was was no fan of football and obviously her time in power coincided with the English disease, which hooliganism became known as, um, taking taking control. And that's, you know, that's what the 80s football is, is often remembered for, sadly. And when are you delivering the manuscript for the second book? In a, in a year's time, it's supposed to be done. And it's supposed to be out October 2023. We'll, 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 we'll have to see. Um, it might it might be kind of two years time. It might be two years after this one, but I'll I'll try and try and move on it. The thing is that I find that when I finish a book, I, I you need to get in a different headspace for the next one because the eighties is a very very different feel to the seventies. The seventies there are serious issues, but it's quite fun in areas. It's quite kitsch. It's quite revolutionary. Whereas the eighties. It's it's talking about some very very serious issues with hooliganism and tragedy, um, as well as explaining why it was a sport ultimately worth saving. So I've had to kind of move into a different headspace for it, which has taken time actually. And it's interesting to note that there was no foreign talent, unless you count Scots and Irish, until 1978, and yet <clears throat> England failed to qualify for the World Cup in 74 and 78. So really, it would have been 78 where football did change. And in a way, would the 70s be a hangover from the 60s in a way that the early years of the Premier League, up until about Arsene Wenger famously inventing pasta, were a hangover from the First Division era? Yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting point. It's an interesting point. I mean, there are, there are lots of reasons why England failed to qualify for World Cups in in 74 and, and 78 at a time when English clubs in Europe were doing, you know, so well. I mean, Bob Paisley uh, and, and Brian Clough obviously, you know, lifted European Cups with their with their teams and various clubs like Leeds got to the final, Derby got to the semi-final of, of, of the European Cup. Um, and, yeah, it's, I, it, it's interesting about why that was. I mean, like I said earlier, I think one of the problems is that when you watch football in that decade there are very few teams if you like whose style have have stood the test of time i mean derby the derby team of 71 72 still look very very good on 
you know, from 50 years later. Um, but you watch the England teams of that era and it is very, very clunky. The kind of lofted diagonal balls into the box. It was still very much an aerial game when teams like West Germany and Holland were playing solely on, on the floor and kind of putting in mind-spinning mind formations, um, which, you know, saw them either, in West Germany's case, win the European Championships and the, and the World Cup, or Holland, you know, losing, losing two finals. So I don't think that the England team's style at the time was sufficiently forward-thinking enough, which is why they, they, they lost out in, in both 74 and 78 in terms of qualification. One of the things I learned when I was writing my book that I'm not here to talk about is that Sunderland's captain for the 1973 FA Cup final, who had done, I think he'd been the captain of their youth team as well in the 60s, Bobby Kerr, Bobby never, Kerr yeah. never played for Scotland. And the thing I took away from that is, well, who stopped him? Who stops an FA Cup winning captain getting into the team? And I guess you'll be able to tell me who played central midfield for Scotland in the 70s. You put me on the spot there. Sunes would be one. Don Masson would be another, I think, um, who, who played for QPR and I think he then played for, for Notts County. Um, I'll tell you what is remarkable as well when you talk about uncapped Scotland players is that John McGovern, yes. who was European Cup captain with Forrest on two occasions, never played for Scotland either. Mm. You know, there's sometimes it's down to who plays north of the border and who plays south. And I guess sometimes it's you know, whose face fits and, and whose doesn't. I didn't know that about Bobby Kerr, actually. You caught me out there, Johnny. Well, <laughs> it's all it's all in from Kids to Champions, the history of the FA Youth Cup, May the 2nd. It's out on pitch, but we're not here to talk about that. Ah. We're, here, we're here to talk about... And the Arsenal do figure, don't worry, because uh, they, <laughs> they have won it several Good. times. In fact, Arsenal won the FA treble. Uh, they won the FA double, and in the season that they won the league... 70-71, the season after yeah. you were born. First Division, FA Cup, FA Youth Cup, 1971, yeah. with Brendan Batson in That's that youth right. team. Um, yeah. So very briefly, before we head back to the 70s, we will talk about the other books, what you've written. And they're all available quite affordably electronically. For £2, you can read about the Top Guns, Arsenal in the 1990s. Yeah, we'll, we'll work upwards in price. So Arsenal in the 90s started with sticking their arms in the air, ended with Tony Adams sticking both arms in the air. Okay, came a long way in eight years. But what it was it like watching Bruce Riot one week, Arsene Wenger the next? Uh, well, it was, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a pretty remarkable transformation. Although, what I would say, in fairness to, to Bruce Rioch, is that he did kind of start Arsenal on the on the path from 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 kind of strictly four four two and a rather more defensive approach under George Graham to a little bit more of a of a of an attacking philosophy. I mean, you know, Bergkamp was signed on on Rioch's watch, and obviously Bergkamp was massively influential not just for Arsenal but for, for English football in terms of his approach and in, in terms of his style but it was it was Rioch who, who kind of encouraged Arsenal's fullbacks Dixon and Winterburn to start bombing forward and encouraged Martin Keown you know the most dogged of English centre-backs to start kind of moving forward and develop his ball skills. I mean, he played Keown in midfield a few times which mm. I don't think Keown was too happy about but he acknowledged later it actually helped him 
and become a kind of, you know, ball-carrying centre-back in the style that Tony Adams later became. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I thought the Real era was, was OK, but obviously what Wenger did is he, uh, he brought a whole new approach with the, the training, with the, the dietary requirements, the water, the, the tablets they took. Um, and, yeah, I mean, watching Arsenal in the late 90s was was a, a magnificent time uh, to, to watch them. But, you know, I also enjoyed watching Arsenal in 91 as well when they lost just one game that season as they won the league. So, yeah, Arsenal in the 90s is, is, uh, is, a, is a hell of a story. But Arsenal were quite successful at the beginning and, and the end of it, as they tended to be sort of in the 70s and, and, and well, well, yeah, not in the 80s, actually. Mm. They were successful at the end, but not at the start. So, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's it, under Graham and, and under Wenger, Arsenal were, were hugely successful. And Tony Adams, the way he's turned his life around, for which I think it was the 91 season, he missed half of it because of the injury and various other things. Um, but Arsenal seemed to band and rally round him. And that 91 side, hardly ever spoken about because everyone talks about what happened next with Leeds, then United, then Blackburn. And no one really talks about Blackburn anymore either. But everyone, of course, will talk next year because it happened on Sky's Watch, uh, the 25th anniversary of the... Yeah. The double winners, by God, there'll be a film about that. Uh, and you'll you'll watch it because you were there. Highbury, Story of Arsenal in N5, which came out in 2010 and is available on Kindle at £4. You'd followed Arsenal. Had you been to the cup finals in 93 and 94? Yeah, yeah, I've been, been to those. I've been to those 93 FA Cup final and League Cup final and then the, the cup winners cup in Copenhagen, yeah? Yeah. yeah. And so Arsenal were... They were getting together a really good team. Who were the three foreigners? Ah, actually, that I know who the three foreigners are. What was your reaction when George Graham got sacked? I was I was quite devastated, to be honest, at, at first, because George Graham had kind of, you know, rekindled Arsenal into something special. Um, but to be fair, his you know his, his time was up. And if you if you look back on it now, there was real talk at the time that the defence was past it. Um, you know, this was we're talking 1995, and there were. I remember that the season that George Graham went. There were rumours that Tony Adams was going to go to Manchester United, which almost made us, you know, uh, keel over. If I'm honest with you, and the fact that they played on for what another seven years, most of them showed you that a different approach was needed. So, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Because George Graham. When as Arsenal have struggled or struggled defensively in, in recent years, there's a lot of talk of, oh, you know, we need we need a bit of George Graham's tactical nous and we could defend under George. And I think it's brought up a generation of Arsenal fans like me who think you build your team from the back. I know the modern philosophy is that you, you know, you, you need, um, you know, you need exciting players up front and everything else. But to me, if you don't have a, a fantastic defence, you are you're, you're you're building your team on 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 shifting stands mm. sands to be honest with you. So I'm a big fan of George Graham and, and that era, and it's given me a kind of more <laughs> kind of defensive view of football. I, I love Arsenal when they keep a clean sheet. So the other week when they won one 0 at Wolves, I was I loved it when the central defenders were high fiving each other. Yeah. To me, a clean sheet is just a beautiful thing. <laughs> that well, that's a book in itself, actually. Um, yeah. I saw Arsenal win one nil uh, against Watford earlier in the season. Watford were ha- well, hopeless, really hopeless. But yeah. it was lovely to see Smith Rowe 
looking yeah. like a Meza Ozil, the way he took the ball. and it, it, Something is working at Arsenal. It might take a few more years for the youngsters to come through. Someone abbreviated them. Was it Toss? Odegaard, Smithrow, Saka and... Or M- Martinelli, was it Moss? There uh, is an abbreviation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But Ars- Arsenal Twitter is a good place to go at the moment. Um, yeah, it, will, it is. I mean, hopefully it will be after they play... After they play Wolves tonight, I mean, I like an Arsenal at the moment to where they were sort of around the, the, after the kind of first year of George Graham being in charge. That they've got the basis of a great team, good, fantastic young players coming through, like you say. I think what they need is they need a, a, a top quality central midfielder because I think that Xhaka, I don't, I don't mind Xhaka as much as some do, but I think he's reckless. No, he's hopeless. He will, he will, he will cost he's us. playing tonight. I've just looked at the lineup. I don't know if you've yeah. seen it, but... Yeah, yeah um, I have, yeah. Uh, he's, he's, I think he's, he's, he's reckless. And we also need two top strikers, because yeah. Lacazette has, has always been a little bit leaden-footed to me, for me. And, um, you know, I think he, he puts a decent shift in, but he's not a, not a top striker. And not replacing Aubameyang... I think I, I, I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to save money and they're trying to invest if and when they get it top four. But that's it's a big gamble to take. And I think that uh, you know there's been different times. We clearly need more more um, more penetration up front. Yeah, so, but yeah, but definitely. You're looking at what Arteta's mate is doing at Man City, playing either Sterling or Foden. As a central striker, there are a couple of kids on the bench tonight for Arsenal: Swanson and Hutchinson. Do you know anything yeah, about them? Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Yeah, I, I just checked it out before yeah. I came on here. Yeah, I mean that's it. They're, they're investing. They're investing in the future, and they're, they're investing in youth, which again I think chimes with with Arsenal fans because Arsenal's best teams have tended to be when the, the, the you know youth has come through. There's the seventy seventy one double winning team. There were there was a ton of of youth team products there, you know, Pat Rice, George Armstrong, um, Peter Story, you know, John John Radford, Ray Kennedy, all come through the ranks. You then go for the, the team in the late 80s and 90s under George Gray, you know, Adams, Davis, Rowcastle, Thomas. So what what Arteta's doing in that respect chimes with us, I think, as as Arsenal fans, certainly, certainly of my vintage anyway. And um, I don't think there's anything better in football than seeing youngsters come into your team and, and flourish. No, there, there really isn't, which is why this Youth Cup book is right up your street. And yes, it was I'm interesting looking, looking to know. To it. Uh, thank you. Well, it was interesting to know that Arsenal actually lost their third round game. Uh, Charlie Patino, Patino was the captain. You say Patino. Uh, and they lost 3 0. <laughs> the week after uh, Arsenal's first, I think it was the semi final or the quarter final of the League Cup, Merce was raving about the kids. Obviously, he hadn't looked up that they lost to Colchester United the week before. Uh, <laughs> God bless Paul Merson. Um, your book, The Alternative History of Arsenal, I've got one simple question. If Herman yeah. Chapman hadn't come along, where would Arsenal be right now? Oh, wow. There's a, there's a good question. Well, the thing is that, that moving to Highbury um, happened before Chapman and was a fantastic uh, idea by, by Henry Norris, the, the chairman, because what he realised was that based in Woolwich... Um, it was always going to be difficult to pull in large crowds, whereas, you know, putting us uh, right next to the, the, the you know, the, the Piccadilly line within easy reach of the, 
the uh, the home counties. Um, you know, I'm from, I'm from Hertfordshire originally, and uh, you know there are a lot of Hertfordshire, Essex, Bedfordshire Arsenal fans, as well as pulling in those from London. It was an inspired idea. So I think that Arsenal would have probably got it right eventually, but. I think without, with, you know, what Chapman did is he built he built the club into a world name, and I'm not sure that we would have had the history, the tradition, and the kind of aura without without Herbert Chapman. I, I think we owe I think we owe him everything, and I think that. You know, there's a lot of debate over who's the greatest Arsenal manager. Is it Wenger and Chapman? It's, you know, it's very difficult to compare. They were fantastic sides in different eras. But it's like sort of Busby and Ferguson at United. Busby and, and Chapman built the team into and the club into what they are. And obviously Ferguson and, and Wenger um, achieved fantastic success later. But for me, Chapman is, is probably the most, well, you know, he's the most important figure in Arsenal history. Definitely. The football library visit of Lynn Hapgood, Professor Lynn Hapgood, laid oh, bare yeah. the, the importance of Edris Hapgood, yeah. Eddie Hapgood. What a great story he had, Eddie. was a one-club man. No one could displace him. England captain in the 30s and, of course, pretty much the first name on the team sheet of Chapman. And Arsenal's storied history goes back to those days. They called them the Marble Halls of Highbury. I guess the yeah. Marble Hall of Ashburton Grover, a bit different given who's um, running the football club at the moment. But do you know yeah. what the worst thing to happen to Arsenal was this year? The worst thing, the LA Rams winning the Super Bowl. My God, Cronky won't shut up about that, will he? No, 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 that's right. Silent, silent Stan does speak. He speaks through his investments. But yeah, before we finish the first half and we'll return to the 70s later, it just yeah. it is damning that for the last five years since Arsene left, all the chat has been, where is the investment? You've got the investment now on the, on the spine, basically. You've got rid of the troubled striker. Zaka needs to go quickly. Um, promoting from within is brilliant, but you're a couple of players away from um, yeah. where you... Well, look at where you are on the table. Um, you're a couple yeah. of places away from it. And I think the table doesn't lie, but yeah. looking at the... And you've, you're a few games behind, but if you win all of them, uh, you'll yeah. be touching Chelsea. Still far, far away from Man City and Liverpool in that yeah. the players that they've got and the systems they play in are such that they're miles ahead. But of the teams around Arsenal, Chelsea, United, West Ham, and it's uh, sixth against seventh tonight as we speak. Of all those teams, I think Arsenal are perhaps best placed now that off the pitch... Things seem to be going right with Arsenal. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I think if if you use Twitter as a kind of weather bay, mm -hmm. you know, it, you've got to be wary of that because you know Arsenal fans in the in the in the latter years of Wenger were it was quite ugly on Twitter. I think you know they were turning on each other. It it was ugly. It wasn't it wasn't it wasn't pleasant at all. And I think that Arteta needs one more transfer window. In other words, the churn. That, as you say, the troubled strike has gone. They've got rid of a lot of players who, frankly, weren't weren't up to it. But you know, I wonder if um, you know Nicola Pepe has a future. Xhaka, I think, is like is likely to be moved on. They have to get they have to get re recruitment spot on. And in some ways, I was quite relieved that they didn't splash it recklessly on a new striker in January if that new striker wasn't top quality because I just think what's the point there's no point in plodding along with players who aren't going to give value added to to Arsenal um, so yeah I, I, I think that with good spending in the summer I think European football would help 
But I still think that Arsenal are Arsenal and the name and the location, you know, footballers are sufficiently vain to want to play in London for a big club. They're still they're still a draw, but you know, Champions League would help. I'm not sure Europa League is a, is a big magnet for players, if I'm honest for, with you. No. Um, but, but Champions League certainly certainly would be. And then, we're, we're there, then we go back to the last 16 turkey shoots, which we loved against Bayern Munich those years ago. Hopefully we'll, we'll be in a stronger position than that if we, if we regain Champions League football. But, uh, you, know, I'm, you know, a club like Arsenal should be playing in the Champions League. But there are, there are lots of clubs. You know, there are a few clubs who, who would say that. Yeah. And one final question in this half. Why aren't you at the Emirates tonight? Ah, now that is a good question. That is because tonight at, uh, I'm a teacher yes. um, during my uh, during the day, and I had a parents' evening, so I had appointments for that until um, half past six. So then I got home to, to speak to you. So no, I'll be watching that on the telly later. Oh, okay. Well, I will put an apple on your desk, and we'll speak about the seventies a bit more in this second half. <laughs> 